Once again, if you would take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. This morning we'll be looking particularly at verses 29 to 33, though for the sake of context I'll read verses 16 through 33. Hear now the word of our God. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. As you are no doubt aware, especially looking all around in shopping centers, looking online, this is what is known as Pride Month. Pride Month, and it is, to be quite frank and quite blunt, being rammed down our throat at every possible turn. It's actually symptomatic of a greater problem. We tend to get focused 
on a specific kind of sin, but it is really symptomatic of a deeper, darker issue, namely the world's hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Just by way of an example, earlier this week, only a couple of days ago, in fact, on Twitter, the MSNBC Twitter account tweeted this, it's becoming increasingly clear that the United States is under siege by Christian fundamentalists and traditionalists. That's the world's take. Things have shifted even more and more to be anti-Christian, to be anti-Christ. Obviously, somebody at MSNBC is worried about Christian fundamentalists and traditionalists, however they may define it. But the truth of the matter is what they really should fear is Christ himself. Christ is the one who reigns supreme. Now here we are in John chapter 16, part of, and now concluding, but part of what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure when he would leave this earth and he would send the Holy Spirit. And as we've seen in the somewhat basic outline form, chapter 14, Jesus focused on giving comfort to his disciples. Chapter 15, basically trying to give instruction on how they ought to live when he departs. And here in chapter 16, prediction. And much of what Jesus predicted here just in chapter 16, we're seeing fulfilled right before our very eyes. And even this is intended in no small way to help us understand and that none of this takes us by surprise. And also to help us understand that the Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what is going on in this world today. The last verse of our passage is a wonderful summary of what Jesus is trying to do for his disciples. In the world, you will face tribulation, but I have overcome the world. I think Christians sometimes forget that truth. We're shocked and surprised in not the right kind of way when the world does as the world does. And it is unfortunate. As we hear now from Jesus' own lips, the reality is what we see unfolding before our eyes and the world around us is exactly what Jesus predicted would happen. But just as important as he predicted those things, we also ought to take to heart the reality that Jesus has already overcome the world. All things are in his hand. This is why this entire farewell discourse as a whole is intended to comfort his disciples in the immediate moment, in the hours before his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. 
but also to be a comfort for you and for me. And so what I hope to show from verses 29 to 33 is simply this, that Christ reminds us that even in our weakness and the world's hatred, he has overcome. Christ reminds us that even in our weakness and the world's hatred, he has overcome. I'm going to look at this under two basic headings. First of all, we'll look at the disciples' confession. And then secondly, we'll look at Christ's warning. So first of all, the disciples' confession. Look again at verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So the disciples now seem to have a response that is a bit or seemingly a bit of an epiphany. It's like the light bulb went on for them. And so the language that is here presented, as John quotes them, it's the ESV has ah now. It could also even be translated behold now. It could be translated lo. Translations have that. Lo, now you are speaking plainly. And not using these figurative, this, these figures of speech. It's interesting because the manner of speech from Christ, as I was thinking about this this week, the, the language that Christ used really did not shift all that much. Did you notice that? He was still direct, but it even here in his gospel proclamation in verse 28, it's not as complete as a, of a picture as we might think. And also in particular, as we think about the bigger block of verses 19 through 28, and you specifically think of what Jesus said there. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. Something clicked. Something clicked. Now there is debate, and as we'll see when Jesus himself responds, there is debate as to how much things may have really clicked, if you will, in the minds of the disciples. I do think it is fair to say that something became clear to them. We also know, based on Jesus' prediction coming in just a couple of verses, plus the actual actions of the disciples, that though some things clicked, they were still weak, and they still failed, and they still struggled, and they still feared with an ungodly kind of fear. But nevertheless, somehow, some way, it's fascinating here, because Christ did say, in speaking in future language, the time will come when I will speak plainly to you. That time hadn't quite come yet. So something here seems to, to connect for them. And what follows as a result of this appears to be a confession of faith of sorts. They understand who Jesus is. Notice they say, now we know you know all things. Now, sometimes we joke when we get into certain conversations. I know that you know that I know. And it almost sounds like that. We know that you know all things. 
things. Now the word here that John uses in his translation for us, as he recounts what Jesus says, the word here, it's a, good, it's a perfectly legitimate translation, but it is not the same word to know that where we get the word and the expression Gnosticism from. It is synonymous. It does deal with knowledge, and it does deal with perception. They perceive something has now clicked for the disciples in a much greater way. Now, we also need to understand that in the past, relative to this moment, at the Mount of Transfiguration, or even just after the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's own confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even though they did not fully understand everything that was going on. But now they know that Christ knows all things. At this stage... The disciples have come to a new realization that Christ is the fountainhead of all knowledge and wisdom. This is very similar to what Paul says in in Colossians chapter 2. In him, in Christ, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The disciples are beginning to understand that in Christ he knows all things. And that is significant because in this passage, Christ is predicting the future. He's predicting the future. They know he knows all things. That means he knows what's going to happen. Of course, from a perspective of systematic theology, we understand that Christ knows what's going to happen because he ordained all things that will happen. But from the perspective of the disciples, they have no idea what's coming. Even though they've been told time and time again, they don't quite understand. As I mentioned before in the previous verses, the disciples here have no real frame of reference for a Messiah who would be arrested, who would be crucified, who would die, who would rise again and then leave. But somehow they are beginning to understand that Jesus knows. He knows all. Just unfortunate. They didn't quite get it all. And while it's easy to be hard on the disciples because of their foolish ignorance, this happens to us time and time again. We fall into the trap of forgetting the things that God's word has said to us. Yes, but God's word says, yeah, I know that, but. We're very good at the but. Yeah, but. Those are probably our favorite words when we're confronted about what God's word says. When we're trying to be reminded of the comforts that can be found in there, our usual response is usually something like, yeah, but. And it shouldn't be. The Lord's word is from the mouth of the Lord. And as such, the things that are contained there are absolutely true and certain. And that's why you and I can take comfort in them. No matter what our circumstances may be, the words of Christ are there to build us up, in the, to use the words of the shorter catechism, to build us up in holiness 
but also in comfort. Something the disciples would need as they would face the world. But now they know. And notice how this confession unfolds even further. We know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. On the surface, that might seem a bit odd the way that's expressed. But but really what they're getting at is the idea that Jesus knows how to answer before anyone questions. And that's exactly what happened. Remember, you go back to verse 19, or even just a little bit. They were talking amongst themselves from verses 16 to 18. What is Jesus Jesus talking about? What is it that he means when he says a little while? And notice what verse 19 says. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he kind of asked him, asked them in their place. He answered their question before they even asked it of him. He knew what they needed and he provided it. And this gives the disciples a position in which they understand who he is a little bit better. The one who truly knows all things. We didn't even tell him. We were talking amongst ourselves and he knew what we were talking about. Does not need anyone to question him. This is this action, this statement from Jesus in replying that they, gives them a greater realization of who he is. It's actually, truth be told, not unlike what we saw with Philip and Nathaniel back in chapter 1. Jesus sees them under the tree. And the realization, this man knows everything about me. Well, what are we to make of this? What do we think about the disciples and what they have to say here? It's important to note that all of this leads to the conclusion for the disciples right there at the end of verse 30. This is why we believe you came from God. To what extent or how strong their faith is, is certainly debatable. But there's at least something here. They believe Christ came from God. They know it because he knows everything. They know it because they didn't even have to ask him the question. He gave the answer. You see, at the end of this, it's more than just the fact that he knows all things. It's more than just the fact that he doesn't need anyone to question him. But all of those things, the miracles, the teachings, these predictions, all point to the reality of what Christ has been saying about himself all along. He has come from God. He came to do the will of God. And thinking about all that entails, he came to fulfill 
all the gospel promises. He was sent by God and he willingly came. And what is about to transpire from the perspective of the text and he's going to go to the cross for the sake of you and for me. He came from God. That's our hope. That's where it begins. This thinking about verse 28, the summary of the gospel that we saw in those four parts of verse 28. He came from the Father. He came into the world. Now he's leaving the world and he's going to the Father. Jesus is here to fulfill the promise of the gospel. He came from God who sent his son that all who believe on his name would have eternal life. The disciples are finally starting to get it. And my friends, as we face tribulation and trials of many kinds, it's always good to take a step back and go back to the basics. The basics of the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do. Saving faith boils down to believing in the person and work of Jesus. Knowing and believing who he is and what it is he came to do. To redeem sinners like you and me. And as wonderful a truth as that is, we also have to keep it in perspective for us as believers in this life. There is joy in Christ's salvation. There is wonderment of his love and grace in our lives. But we also need to be given a picture of what it looks like for the believer in this world. And this brings us to our second point, Christ's warning. Look now at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus, at least apparently, especially as the ESV has it, answers them with a question, do you now believe? Some translations have it as a statement, now you are believing. There's a lot of debate because the Greek in and of itself is not clear. It could be a question. It could be a statement. If it is a statement, now you are believing, Jesus is about to confront them that, okay, you've got faith, but your faith is weak. If it's a question, he's wondering, how much do you really believe? Either way, Jesus is about to predict that their profession of faith is at best a profession of a weak faith. The same basic effect here. Jesus does not exactly congratulate them or give them a good job and give them a sticker for understanding. In fact, what he does, he confronts them a bit in sort of the same fashion that he has already been doing. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered. 
This is not unlike the prediction of Peter's denial back in chapter 13, verse 38. Peter says, I'll lay down my life for you. Really, Peter? The truth of the matter is, before the rooster crows three times, or before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Such was his faith, weak, even if real. The verb here in our text, to be scattered, it's passive. It'll happen to them. And that is true as we think about what happens. We're all familiar. There they are on the Mount of Olives, and the soldiers come, and they arrest Jesus. What happens? They scatter. They take off. They're gone. They leave. And Jesus says, that's what you will do, my disciples. You will leave me alone. You see, that's active. Jesus is essentially saying he understands what's about to happen. He's going to be arrested. You guys are going to face the soldiers as well. But your faith is not going to be enough to keep you standing at my side. You will leave me, and you will leave me alone. The events that are soon to happen will affect them, but as it does, they choose to flee. They will leave him all alone. And my friends, this is a rather sad prediction. But it's also one that was foretold. This is what Jesus says is going to happen. And what actually does happen is a fulfillment of what we see in Zechariah chapter 13. The shepherd struck and the sheep scattered. So again, Jesus proving once again, he knows all things. You know, we take a step back. We, we sometimes think and sometimes, and we should, take great comfort in knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ knows all things. But there are times where that should be a very uncomfortable thing. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our secret sins. He knows that which is going on in our minds and in our hearts. But the beauty of it is, despite that, he still loves us. Sometimes our thought life gets out of control. Let's, let's be honest. It does. It gets out of control. We start thinking of other people in the wrong ways. We start thinking of what's happening in the news. And when we see what the world is trying to push our way and how it's even infiltrating so-called Christian organizations. And our thought life gets out of control. Christ knows. And as such, that's the kind of knowledge that you and I should take note of, and it should drive us to repentance. Drive us to confess our sin, confess our weakness, confess our struggles. Now, of course, we know the disciples, every time they were confronted about being what those who would leave Jesus alone, 
No, no, not us, Jesus. We got your back. We also need to remember, as when push comes to shove, there will be moments of weakness for us. The disciples here, in Jesus' description, prediction, of what's going to happen, really ought to serve as a warning to all of us that when the tribulation and trials do come our way, that we do not flee that we would take heart, that Jesus knows all things. He knows all things, and he knows them well. He does all things, and he does them well. That doesn't make the tribulation less painful, but it gives us a rock upon which you and I can stand in the face of those storms. That Jesus Christ knows all these things. Jesus continues. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. Now is the time when you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone yet. I'm not alone. For the Father is with me. And we see again the beauty of Trinitarianism at its best. That the Father and the Son, their union is never broken. Now I know people like to speak, if I can go off on a slight tangent, like to speak of the death of the Christ, uh, the death of Christ on the cross as the Father turning his back on the Son. We have to qualify that carefully. That is God as judge turning his back from Jesus according to his human nature. It is God the Son incarnate who is bearing the full wrath of God in our place. In terms of the divine being, the divine essence, That unity of Father, Son, and Spirit is never broken. Now, many of us will sit here and think, I can't wrap my head around that. And that's right, we can't. But it's important for us to understand the proper terminology of what's taking place. And though, in one sense, according to his human nature, the Father will turn in disgust, as it were, from the sin that is imputed upon him on the cross, yet, according to his divine nature, that perfect unity remains. And so the Father is still with him, even as it seems that he might be alone. And that should be a reminder for you and for me as well. There will be times in your life whether it's just the trials of every day or the persecution that could come our way because of our faith in Christ. It may feel like we're alone, but because of your union with Christ, you never are. You never are alone. Just as the Father is always with the Son, So God, through his spirit, 
is always with you, no matter what happens. A wonderful truth that should warm our hearts, even in the face of difficulties. Notice Jesus here continues. They scatter each to his own home. I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And we see in verse 33 a statement that is so familiar to us. I have said these things to you. He's stated that expressly or something similar many times in the past. And many times it was always in the context of, I tell you these things now, so when they happen, you will believe. This is no different. I tell you these things now. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Now it's more deeper, far deeper than just believing what Jesus said. It's more internal that they have peace, peace within them. These, are, these things are said and taught by Christ so that they would have peace. Now oftentimes when we think, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, as we get very doctrinal. We tend to think of peace, and rightfully so. This is extremely important. The doctrine of reconciliation, that we have been reconciled with God, and that is true. But this is a case where Jesus is actually talking about inner peace, calm, no more anxiety or angst over it. Now, you can't separate the two thoughts. That sense of peace is because we've been reconciled to God. But here in this context, Jesus, in the face of whatever it is that the disciples are about to experience, these things are said not just that they would believe, but that they would have peace. And my friends, these things are said to you that you may be at peace. And this is a time when, again, those yeah buts come up. Even as I was reading this text this week, they were coming up in my own mind, yeah but. Remind yourself of the things that Jesus has said to you. He says these things to you that you may have peace that you may be at peace. This word oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes translates the Hebrew word shalom. The sense of wholeness or completeness. Jesus has just said that he's not going to be alone. The Father will be with him. I've just encouraged you that in the same way you may feel alone but you who are united to Christ have God with you, in you, alongside of you so that you would be at peace. You can have this peace and as simple as it sounds and in one sense it really is this simple Remind yourself 
of the things that Jesus has said to you. That when these things happen, you would be at peace. And it's also important to note, maybe you noticed it. I left off, at least at this point, as I've been unpacking this. Two key words. In me. In Christ. It is not a peace that is just somewhere out there that we have to lay hold of. It's in Christ. Just as the Father and Son are united, in a similar fashion, you who have faith in Christ can have this peace. But it takes remembering what Jesus said. It takes remembering Jesus' prediction about things that would happen. We have, throughout the rest of Scripture, and of course we love to turn to the book of Revelation for this, but predictions about what will happen. It's going to be rough. And even if we take the disciples' confession of faith at face value, that they have true faith here, weak though it may be. Jesus, again, does not hide the reality of the hard life a Christian may face. This is where so much of the prosperity gospel, so-called, goes so far off the rails. Believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. All your troubles will go away. That kind of thing destroys lives. No, my friends, you find that peace in Christ. In Him. The very things that Jesus is telling His disciples right here, right now, hours before His arrest and crucifixion, is the same thing you and I need to hear each and every day as we face the world trying to catechize us. As we have a world out there that is trying to preach to us. But we also need to understand that there are those in the church that are being swayed by the world as well. Remember these things that Jesus teaches that in him you would have peace. How can we be certain of this peace? Well, it's fascinating because Jesus continues here and it actually doesn't get better. He kind of plainly says, there's no figure of speech here. In the world, you will have tribulation. We've already been talking about that. The word here for tribulation, it could mean affliction. In the world, in the world, you'll have tribulation, affliction. You as disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is why, my friends, it is dangerous to cozy up to the world. The world hates you because it hates Christ. The world sees its problems all around. And you know who they're blaming? They're blaming you. 
They're blaming, even as I read that tweet from MSNBC, Christian fundamentalists and traditionalists. That's the real problem. In this world, you will have tribulation. Unfortunately, too many Christians, well-meaning, well-meaning, and no doubt have faith in Christ, are too naive to the reality of the hatred of the world against Christ's people. And they try to cozy up. They try to adopt the world's ways. They try to entice the world. All the while failing to realize that they've already been enticed by the world. We cannot compromise. Jesus is not telling his disciples, hey, the world's going to give you tribulation. So if you just be nice to them, they'll back off. Now on the flip side, it's important that we understand, this also doesn't give us permission to be jerks either. We need to be blunt, true, honest, faithful to the word of God but also loving and compassionate to the lost. We ought to have a sense of urgency. This world will give us tribulation. It's naive, as I mentioned, to think that Christians can please the world. We can't. We give an inch, they take a mile. It's sad how frequently the church adopts the world's ways. May we never do so. We will have tribulation, and that may sound depressing. And in many respects, it is. And it becomes even more depressing when such kinds of tribulation come from within the walls of the church. But Jesus' final words in this farewell discourse, but take heart. And the conjunction there, but, that is the strongest contrasting conjunction. But, despite what the world will throw at you, take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. This is a massive contrast. Jesus now gives the reason for the peace that you can find in Christ. It's because Jesus has overcome the world. And in fact, the language that is used here by Jesus is quite emphatic. I myself have overcome the world. I myself. Another thing that it does, besides just give emphasis, it points to the exclusivity of Christ himself. It is Christ alone who overcomes the world. Do you understand that ultimately it's not the church that overcomes the world? It's not you as a Christian, no matter how good you might be. It's Christ who has overcome the world. And it's also rather fascinating here. Because as it's written here or translated in the English, it's in the past tense. In Greek, it's what's known as the perfect tense. In Greek, you have like, well, you have 
up to three different possible tenses that could be something like a past tense. This tense, the perfect tense, speaks of an event that happened in the past but has ongoing, continuing significance. There's beauty in this statement that Jesus makes. I have overcome the world. First of all, Jesus is saying this to his disciples before the cross. Sometimes what we see in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, things that are written in a kind of past tense before it even happens to emphasize the surety, the certainty that it's going to happen. Christ is telling his disciples before it happens, it's happened. It's a done deal. We do this in English sometimes. So certain. Consider it done. Right? That's, what do you think that expression means? Just consider it like it's been done already, even though it hasn't been done yet. But it's also important to understand the significance that Christ, through his person, through what he did on the cross, in rising again from the grave, in ascending up into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, has overcome the world. The world is his footstool. And that, my friends, is why you can have peace. I did read that tweet from MSNBC. And you can hear, so to speak, their fear of Christian fundamentalists and traditionalists. That somehow we're the problem. But the reality is they should fear Christ because he has overcome the world. He is victorious. He has conquered Through his death and resurrection, he reigns supreme. And those that are still in the world have a choice to make. Yes, as a Calvinist, I said that. Are they going to continue in their wickedness? Or are they going to bow before King Jesus, repent of their sinful ways, trust in his grace and mercy, And be forgiven. We live in a time right now. Where all of us as Christians. Find an intense tension in our lives. Concerning the world. We pray in earnest. For the salvation of souls. We're desperate for it. We plead with the lost. But we are also those who ought to be praying in precatory psalms against the wicked. And none of us should point out any one individual and just say, well, obviously you're not elect. That's absurd. At the end of the day, we can pray for both things. That's what we pray for when we say, thy kingdom come in the Lord's prayer that the kingdom of Satan would be destroyed and the kingdom of grace would be more and more manifest, that the kingdom of glory would come. The two go hand in hand. 
It is not our job to determine who the elect is. Hate to tell you, you're not going to find out until you're in heaven. Our job is simply to proclaim the truth of the gospel, offer salvation in Christ, and just pray that the Lord would save souls and bring justice against the wicked. Those two are not antithetical. And in all of this, you can have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Because Jesus Christ himself has overcome the world. We think about some of the horrific events that have happened just in the past couple weeks. Just in our neighborhood. Christ has overcome the world. We mourn at such tragedy, yes. But we rejoice and give praise to God on high because Jesus Christ has, past tense, overcome the world and that has continuing significance, not just for the world, but for you as a believer in Christ. That's why you can be at peace. I know, brothers and sisters, I make it sound easy. And again, in one sense it is. But it takes work on our part to remind ourselves of these truths so that more and more it fills our hearts, it transforms our way of thinking, So that when the tribulation and affliction of the world comes, you'll be at peace in Christ. Christ has overcome the world. What better way to say farewell to his disciples than to say, I have overcome the world. Be at peace, brothers. Be at peace, sisters. Boys and girls, be at peace. Jesus has overcome. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God in heaven, how we give you thanks for Christ's comforting words, even in the midst of words that warn of what will happen. That in this world, we will indeed have tribulation. Father, we are seeing this today. But Lord, let not the tribulation overshadow the reality that Jesus reigns supreme and has overcome this world. May that give us confidence. May that give us boldness. But may it also give us comfort in in the sense that we would comfort others. May it give us in our hearts and minds a sense of urgency to share the gospel with the lost. May we continue to pray in earnest that the kingdom of glory would hasten, that Christ would return and judge all men with equity and call his people home. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.